Matthew chapter 7. I want to speak again on the subject of judgmentalism. Um, I started this on Wednesday, and I know some of you weren't here Wednesday night, so I'm going to give a little brief review. Uh, But uh, let's read the scriptures here first that uh, deal with the subject. Matthew chapter 7, probably the most well-known verse or section related to this subject, 7 verses 1 through 5. Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then if you turn over to John chapter 7, just one verse there. And verse 24, 724. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous Judgment, or judge the righteous judgment. The righteous judgment. So there is a righteous judgment, and there is a unrighteous judgmentalism. And we are trying to discern the difference between those two uh, as we look at uh, quite a few scriptures here this morning. But I do want to say, just uh, uh, as a preface here, that nothing I say here today denies the reality of the need for judgment, making proper, discerning judgments in our lives. As Christians, we need to be able to judge between what is good and what is evil so we can discern God's will for our lives. Sometimes we need to discern sin in fellow believers and point it out in a loving manner. Um, iron sharpens iron, and we need that from one another. So uh, we're not denying that. It's imperative that we develop the ability to rightly discern the truth by rightly understanding the Scriptures and to be able to refute those who contradict essential doctrines uh, of the faith or live in ways that are counter to the clear teachings of the Scriptures. So that's that's understood, I hope, that there is the proper place for righteous judgment. Judge righteous judgment, Jesus said. Um, but that being said, Jesus also clearly warned against making harsh, unmerciful judgments of others. As we pointed out last time, we all need to be careful of this. This is, this is a message for every one of us, myself certainly included, because we are susceptible to this sin of judgmentalism. It can creep into our lives very subtly and not only hurt others, but it will hurt ourselves, each of us as well. We can actually bring judgment upon ourselves if we have this sin of judgmentalism. 
And again, uh, what I tried to emphasize last time is if we think we're free from this type of thinking, we're probably fooling ourselves. We, we all have areas where this creeps into our lives. Now, what, what I did last time was use the account of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Now, I won't, I'm not going to read it again. I think most of you know the account. But what we tried to do from that account was learn some of the essential dynamics of judgmentalism. We said that judgmentalism often involves an arrogance toward others and an ignorance of ourselves. And you can certainly see that in those Pharisees who were dealing with this adulterous woman and actually uh, trying to use this as a means of trapping Jesus. Um, What happens in judgmentalism is that we choose to focus on others' sins so we don't have to face our own. Now, Jesus didn't allow the Pharisees to do that with that adulterous woman. He said, and he he brought it right back home to them, he who is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone. So he was, he was saying, you need to think about that sin in your life first before you start dealing with the other. And, of course, that's what Jesus is bringing out here in the Sermon on the Mount. Get that log out of your own eye before you start dealing with specks in the others. So that uh, there's that arrogance towards others uh, coupled with an ignorance of ourselves. Then also in that account of the adulterous woman, we saw that judgmentalism is hard-hearted, ready to write off the erring one rather than work to restore the person. They really didn't care about this woman at all. Uh, She was just a means of trying to accuse Jesus. So judgmentalism uh, is graceless and loveless. And we said that that's not only towards others. not just on, in how a judgmental person deals with other, others, but also in the fact that the judgmental person does not understand or appreciate the grace of God in their own lives. If they did, they wouldn't be treating other people that way. Uh, harsh condemnations of others indicates a lack of grace and acceptance in our own lives. And from that, we brought out that one of the main things that can keep us from judgmentalism is regularly reminding ourselves of the great grace that God has shown us. If you want to stay away from judgmentalism, that's one of the ways to do it. Just remember the great grace and mercy that God has extended to you um, in Christ. Jesus dealt with this adulterous woman with love and grace. He said, neither do I condemn you. He was actually the only one there that could, but he didn't. Go your way from now on, sin no more. It's not that he didn't speak to her about the sin in her life, but he did it in a loving and gracious way. And then lastly, last time we said that righteous judgment often takes time. A judgmental person will draw premature conclusions, premature negative conclusions usually, without investigating things sufficiently. Snap judgments without a fair hearing based upon the emotion of the moment. First impressions, stereotypes, hearsay are sufficient for the judgmental person. Now, 
I said that I can't prove this, but I, I think it's likely that uh, when Jesus stooped down there and wrote in the dirt, uh, nobody knows what he wrote, but it may be that he was taking the time to just figure out what was the righteous judgment in this very difficult situation. This was not an easy thing. He, this, he was between a rock and a hard place in, in what uh, they had presented to him here. So it may be that that stooping down and writing in the, in the dirt was just thinking, now what's the righteous way? What's God's way for me to handle this situation? If we find ourselves quick to give our opinions of a person or a group without knowing the facts sufficiently, we are certainly in danger of judgmentalism. I'm trying to point out, you see, various things that we need to be on guard against in this area. Well, basically, that's where we left off last time. This morning, I want to look at some different examples of judgmentalism uh, from the scriptures. And let's first look at a parable that deals with this quite clearly. This is the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the publican. So let's turn to Luke chapter 18. We are trying to just discern what this thing of judgmentalism is so that we can avoid it. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. We'll read uh, down through verse 14. And he, that is Christ, also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But this, but the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Again, here we see that arrogant attitude that we talked about there with the Pharisees and the adulterous Roman. Here it comes out clearly again with this uh, tax gatherer, sometimes called a publican. Uh, Arrogance towards other, a hard-heartedness, a lack of grace and love clearly displayed here. What you have is one who has a superior attitude, uh, basically towards everybody. I'm not like that, I'm not like that, I am like, you know, the righteous one, which, of course, is self-righteousness. That's a mark of what we're talking about here. Um, A judgmental person... Judgmental people are fault finders, okay? Characteristic. They're fault finders. They make a habit of unnecessary criticism, looking for opportunities to criticize others. That might be an individual or a group, 
criticize others. Lloyd-Jones says it this way, they hope and expect to find faults in others and are somewhat disappointed if they can't find something to be critical of. This is their nature. They're fault finders. If you're, if you're a judgmental person, that's a characteristic. You're looking to find something wrong with that other person or that, that particular uh, group. Um, they overlook the positive and concentrate on the negative. Here was a tax gatherer that had come to the temple to pray. Now, there's certainly something commendable about that. You don't know what his heart was, but he came to the temple to pray. But that didn't matter one bit to the, to the Pharisee because the Pharisee was a judgmental person. Now, all they were going to see was the negative there. The judgmental person has the bad habit of seeing negative in everything. They feed off what others are doing wrong. Uh, this one writer put it this way, and I thought this was pretty good. He said, <clears throat> if there were no one around to condemn, the judgmental person wouldn't know what to do with themselves. This is, this is what they're looking for. This is what gets them excited about life, putting somebody else down. Finding fault. <clears throat> of course, one of the reasons that people a lot of times do that is because it makes them feel a little higher, and you can certainly see that in this account. He has that superior attitude towards everyone. Now, let me just give a little aside here. We have to be careful about this hypercritical attitude, even showing up in our own families. A husband or wife that constantly looks for the spouse's faults and shortcomings, or the parent that constantly points out the children's flaws and mistakes and rarely praises the other person for doing well, is manifesting a judgmental spirit. I just want to, you know, bring it home to the home. <laughs> that's judgmentalism. It's a different form of it, but that's what's going on. Uh, I read in one book that it takes seven compliments to undo the effect of one criticism. Now, I don't know how you come up with numbers like that, uh, but I do know that fault-finding is a pretty devastating thing. And it can devastate your husband, your wife, your children. If we keep mental notebooks of others' faults, we are judgmental. You know, it says there in, in the chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, uh, what we call the love chapter, it's uh, uh, one way of translating uh, one of the phrases there is, love keeps no record of wrongs. Well... Conversely, one characteristic of right judgment is that it realizes the importance of encouragement and trust. The importance of encouragement and trust. Healthy, right judgment trusts others until given reason not to. The judgmental 
person takes the attitude guilty until proven innocent. And it assumes the worst. Now, you might say, well, that something doesn't quite jive with Scripture there because we know that all people are sinners, right? That's true. I'm not denying that. But if we go through life skeptical and cynical and critical of everybody, we will not treat people the way Jesus treated them. He knew better than anybody else how sinful people are, but he didn't go through life like that. And we won't be treating people the way Jesus treated people if we go through life with this kind of an attitude. So, again, judgmentalism. One other characteristic from this account of the uh, Pharisee and the tax gatherer. Here we see an example of how the judgmental person puts prejudice and personalities in place of biblical principles, especially the great biblical principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. They put, they put prejudice and personalities above the great biblical principles. This Pharisee obviously despised the tax gatherer. There's no question. He despised this person. He assumed he knew what this person was like because he was a tax gatherer, you see. He may not have known anything else about that person. Probably didn't. They just came into the temple at the same time to pray. But he knew this. That was a tax gatherer. That was enough, you see. He had prejudged the person. That's what, judge, that's what judgmentalism does. It prejudges the person. The Pharisee thought he was able to evaluate the entire nature of this man's life by one thing. He's a tax gatherer. And I say that is a very dangerous way to evaluate people. All the variables, all the hurts, all the struggles, all the circumstances of another person's life, these don't matter to a judgmental person. All that matters is that that person is a tax gatherer or another place in the scripture, another example from the scripture, that person is a Samaritan. That's all it may. If you knew that, case is settled. Now, we don't have those problems so much, although some of us probably have a little problem with tax gatherers yet, but we have it in other areas. And I'm talking about judgmentalism here. Let me give you some examples. That person is a Calvinist. Now, in some groups, that's a bad word. You all, if, if, you, if you know that about the person... Other groups, that person is an Arminian. Ooh. Or that person is a Democrat. Or a Republican. Or a Jew. Or a foreigner. Or some other label that you think demonstrates that that person is somehow inferior and pretty messed up. You label them, you see. That's all, that's, that's enough then. You've got them labeled. That person is a car dealer. That person is a 
junk dealer. That person is a, well, I don't know, politician. You could, you know, different strokes for different folks. What, what I'm talking about here is a judgmental person makes sweeping generalizations, sweeping generalizations that supposedly size up that person's life with a label. He's a tax gatherer. And that's all this Pharisee needed to know. It's a mark of judgmentalism. No attempt is made to find a balanced picture or to consider the other person's actual character. We have them labeled, and that's enough. We pass judgment above and beyond what we really know about the person because we've got them categorized. Now, that's one way that it works. it actually can work in another way, and we don't usually think of this judgmentalism as judgmentalism, but I think it is. In First uh, Corinthians chapter three, verses one through seven, Paul talks about people who said, "I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Apollos," and began to basically be followers of those particular people and say, you know, because I, because I listen to Apollos, I'm in a different class than you who listen to Cephas. But you see, it's, that's judgmentalism. It's, it's putting prejudice and personalities above bi- biblical principles. So it can work that way too. We have to be very careful of these things. They're subtle and they creep in to our lives in many ways. Now I'd like to turn to another place to give some other examples of what we're talking about. And uh, we're going to take a couple from the book of James. So let's turn there. Uh, first of all, verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in this good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. You have made, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judge? Judges with evil motives or evil reasonings. And he goes on and talks about some things related to how they are often mistreated by the the uh, rich. But then he says this: if you skip over to chapter or same chapter, verse eight. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
showing partiality then, or showing personal favoritism because of uh, economic status or social status standing um, is a form of judgmentalism. You're judging with evil reasonings, James says. One writer that I read gave this very incisive caution, and uh, it's pretty penetrating here. It says, distrust your judgment the moment you can discern the shadow of personal motive in it. See, a selfish perspective will distort discernment. Keep your place here in in, uh, James, and let me just read you a verse out of John. You don't need to turn to it, but John chapter 5, verse 30, says this. I can do nothing on my own initiative. This is Jesus speaking. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. Judgment to be, for judgment to be just, it has to be uh, not seeking your own will in it, but the will of him who sent me. He said, I judge, I, as I hear, I judge. In other words, what, he, what, God, what God spoke to him is, is the basis of his judgment. And he says, my judgment's not my own. If I seek, seek my own will, then that judgment is not going to be just. And this is what um, I think was going on here in the situation that James was talking about. A selfish perspective, uh, personal favoritism, showing partiality. Uh, now, skip over in James yet, to chapter 4. And verse 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not, not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I would say that verse 11 may well be one of the most ignored and violated commands of the Bible. Do not speak against one another. <laughs> Just says it right out. Don't speak against one another. It is right to have the essential truths of Scripture to be our standard of reference in dealing with others. It is wrong to make our own personal preferences or our culturally devised standards our basis of fellowship. When we put our standard of measure, that is our opinions, our preferences, our cultural customs, as a criteria of what is acceptable 
and unacceptable, we are setting ourselves up as lawgivers and judges. That's what he's bringing. The, that's why he says it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you and it's not me. To put it another way, judgmentalism is a form of playing God. Judgmentalism is a form of playing God. This can happen with your theology, it can happen with lifestyles, it can happen with uh, how the church is led. Taking the position, I set the standard. Now, few judgmental people would come right out and say it that way. But if you set up unscriptural standards of belief and conduct and then scrutinize others by those self-devised standards, that's what you're doing. You're playing God. You're the lawgiver. You're the judge. Now, here's an amazing thing that the Bible teaches. It actually teaches that you and I can have differing, strong convictions about something and yet both be acceptable to God. Isn't that amazing? You've got to think about that. That's amazing. You and I can have differing, strong convictions about some things, and we can still both be acceptable to God. That's what Romans 14 says. Well, in order to get the point across, I'm going to give you some examples, and I know I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to do it anyway. <clears throat> Let's just take a Sunday meeting, okay? Sunday meeting. Now, people have very strong convictions about how meetings should be conducted. First of all, just the idea of Sunday. Some people say, this is the Sabbath. Some people say, well, no, it's the Lord's Day. It's a day set aside, but we don't have to go by a lot of those Sabbath things. But, you see, there's some strong convictions uh, that people have related to that day. How about the uh, thing of uh, working on Sunday? Some strong convictions about that, one way or the other. How about this one? Come to church, and here is this woman wearing pants. Or here's this guy wearing jeans. Now, that's not a big deal for some people, but you get into some places, that would be a big deal. What are you doing coming to church wearing jeans with holes in them? Um, wearing makeup to church or having your hair a little too long when you come into the meeting. How about this one? Instruments in, in the meeting. I mean, it goes all the way from some people saying no instruments to the other end of the spectrum where, you know, you, can, you should really you should have an orchestra there. Styles of music. 
Oh, you know, we like the traditional hymns, like we sang this morning. But, you know, oh, man, those things are pretty dead. We need to get some of those choruses, contemporary music, going. And if you don't fit the way we do it here, you're not really pleasing to the Lord. Um, styles of music, styles of worship. You got the formal people and the free people. You got the people that go by a liturgy, and you got the people that think that is just an abomination. Um, you got the people that say, unless you use the King James Bible, there's something wrong. And then you got people that use translations that, oh my. If, you read, if, if I quote a verse from one of those translations, I'm in big trouble. Well, how about this one? Clapping and shouting during a meeting. Depending on which group you're in, that can either get you, you know, thinking, man, that's a really good meeting, or these guys are really way out there. Uh, speaking in tongues, head coverings. How many cups you use during communion? I mean, you gotta do, you, should you really use one cup? Because it says that, says that in the scripture. Or if you use juice, is it fermented or non? I mean, it gets, yeah. do you have an altar call when you're done or not? It just goes on like that. And what I'm saying here is that in many of these things, you can have strong convictions. Two people can have differing strong convictions and still be acceptable to God. <laughs> You and I and our own personal preferences and perceptions are not the standard by which others are to be judged. We all have opinions and convictions that we hold strongly, but Paul declares that we're not to pass judgment on such matters, but rather accept one another with our differing convictions. If you want to read about that, read it in Romans 14. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands and falls. The standard of measure, the standard of judgment, therefore, is the master's standard, not the servant's. And that's where we get in trouble. We make the servant's standard of measure uh, to be something that everybody's supposed to go by. No, it's the master's. To their own master they stand or fall. So from this section here in James, we need to realize that we, we are not to take on God's role of lawgiver and judge. It should be obvious to us that this is not our position. We're not God. We are fallen and fallible. That means we make mistakes. And we're finite. We don't know everything. That's, that's why it's good to have God as a judge. He's unfallen, he's not fallible, and he is infinite, not finite. He knows everything. 
So don't speak against one another, brother. And that's, uh, I say again, that is, a, I think, one of the most ignored commands of the Bible. Do not speak against one another, brethren. When an issue is non-essential to salvation and does not undermine an essential doctrine of the faith, we are to be tolerant, generous, and accepting of others' convictions. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Uh, this, this we can say for sure. We don't know another's heart or motive. We just don't. Only God does. So we need to leave the judging of hearts to him. One last point then, and I'll be done. Judgmentalism drives people away from the gospel. Judgmentalism drives people away from the gospel. Now, some people are attracted to this kind of thing, and they go for it. But it doesn't, it's not, you're not attracting them to the gospel. You're just attracting them to other judgmental people who like to hear about all the faults out there with everybody else. Judgmentalism presents God as a nitpicking cosmic killjoy that is constantly pointing out faults and inadequacies. God's presented as a hard taskmaster that brings bondage instead of liberty, that brings death instead of life. And this is certainly not going to attract people to the gospel. So... We must be very careful of this thing of judgmentalism. Uh, let's just do it like this. Let's deal with people the way God deals with us. Don't remember anything else I've said. Just remember that. Deal with people the way God deals with you. I found him to be quite merciful and gracious and loving. So much so that he would send his son to die for me. So let's deal with people the way God has dealt with us. Um, James, we'll close with these verses. James chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. Well, uh, I don't think we've certainly covered all the ground, and I may try to speak on this again in the future because there's a lot, a lot of uh, areas that this thing of judgmentalism goes out into. But at least we've gotten. Some things, I think, uh, out there for you to consider. And uh, we just need to ask God to deliver us in areas that we're still judgmental in. Um, we can even be judgmental of judgmentalism. I mean, we have to really ask God for deliverance in... Uh, 
this area. Well, Jim, why don't you close us in prayer? Father, we thank you for this word this morning. And fast to you, Lord, as a people, as your people, that we need your Holy Spirit to help us in these areas. Uh, to really not have this judgmental attitude, but to have a righteous judgment and a compassionate and merciful way that we need to have people within our own families and then within the church family and then outside of the church. Lord, we just ask that you would work the Holy Spirit in us, that he would conform us more and more to the image of Christ, that our uh, the way we interact with people, the way we conduct ourselves, would be more and more of an example of the way you were and you are. I guess we're ready to get the meal ready. <laughs>